0: All right, well, we are going to jump right in to Lamentations chapter five. So if you can turn there in your Bible. This sermon as we conclude Lamentations is going to be about the need to remember in this process of lament, the need to remember in this process of lament. Chapter five, as we will see, rehearses Jerusalem's story one last time, and it ends with a statement of hope towards God, giving purpose to this last rehearsing of their story. A poem came to mind from T.S. Eliot when I was preparing for the sermon. I'll, I'll read the beginning of the poem. It says this, time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, In time future contained in time past, if all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility. Only in the world of speculation, what might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present." Foothalls echo in the memory, down the passages which we did not take. Towards the doors we never opened, into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind. That poem I read is called Burnt Norton, and in it he explores the theme of time, of memory, past, of time to come, the future, and how they are inextricably tied to the present. Eliot recognizes... That if one is to truly understand where we are now, and if we are to be concerned for our future, we must find a way to develop our memory of the past. If all time is eternally present, says Eliot, all time is unredeemable. As he knows that the present has not appeared in some sort of vacuum. Our present today is built on what has come before and our future is dependent on how we respond right now in the present. In our modern society, there is little room for the act of remembering. Our collective memory in our nation and our YouTube and TikTok world is probably three hours long at most. A year ago today, the cool things, if you were a young person, was dabbing. If you have any kind of young person in your house, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I was teaching a year ago And I learned all these cool things about, you know, teenage pop culture I didn't know. Um, Dabbing was it, which was cool a year ago. It lasted as long as the fidget spinners. Remember those things? Um, The Harlem Shake, sailing, saying YOLO, uh, planking, Coney 2012. Uh, I actually spent the night in Centennial Park in Atlanta with thousands of other people in 2007 protesting that, but we've already forgotten about that again. Uh, The fact that many of you don't even know what I'm saying shows that they appeared as trends as fast as a mist on a summer morning. Just a couple weeks ago, my wife's cousin, which her mother is here this morning, dropped off all of her Beanie Babies from the uh, 90s, and that was another cool fad that was gone in just a couple of years, right? Uh, This is the trend in our American society. Things pop up, and they vanish, and we forget, and we just keep looking on, right? Christianity, though, has been lived out differently. We have built into our very institution, as designed by God himself, times where we intentionally stop to remember. Most pointedly, the Lord's Supper, communion, Uh, which we will be taking today. It is the recalling of a story. It is remembering what took place in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And today we will be taking communion. We will be be remembering the story together. But however, communion is also just a part of a larger and bigger story that we find in Scripture as a whole. We're given bookends to our scriptural story. In the beginning, God is how our scriptures start, and it ends with, behold, I am making all things new. Because God's story is transcendent above ours, yet imminent, as the gospel story shows. God took on flesh, and in Christ, God has forged his own story into ours. And as we remember, we are able to make sense of where we are today as we recall the past and find hope for tomorrow. Because remembering is a very powerful force in our lives that we must cultivate almost as a discipline. I was taught this lesson in very dramatic fashion when I visited Israel some years ago. And we walked through Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. Maybe some of you have been there, if you haven't. Uh, please include it on your bucket list. You will never forget your visit there. Uh, It ends with a room in which there's five candles. And around the five candles on the ceiling, on the walls, all around you, there are mirrors that have refracted the five candles into innumerable little lights that surround you. The idea behind this was that when we talk about millions were perished, how do you visualize millions? That's what they wanted to do is so it lets you somehow visualize that number. And as you looked around this room and saw just the, the infinite amount of candlelights that surrounded you, there was a speaker that slowly just spoke names of those who perished. And the speaker was especially was focusing on the one, one and a half million children who perished in the camps. And as you slowly made your way through the room with the echoing with the names of the dead, you suddenly found yourself walking in a dark tunnel with light at the end. The tunnel began opening up. Sunlight penetrated your your eyes that were so used to the darkness. And as you adjusted to the sunlight, suddenly you found yourself perched on a balcony up high, overlooking the entire city of modern-day Jerusalem, a city that quietly hums with life with progress and hope. This is all very intentional by the architects and designers as they wanted you to feel the deep doldrums of remembrance, but walk out into the hope of a new nation and a fresh start. That is how you remember, that's the discipline of remembering, looking back in order that you may then look forward. And that's what we are going to do today, bringing a climax to us in this sermon series on the book of Lamentations. I will end the service today with a brief expl- explanation of what's going to occur next week and also for the 22nd as we close this season of Lament as a church. But let's dive into chapter 5 of the book of Lamentations. This is a word of the Lord. Remember, O Lord... What has befallen us? Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink, the wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks, we are weary, we are given no rest. We are given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives, because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an earning as an oven, with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah, princes are hung up by their hands, no respect is shown to the elders, young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts have ceased, our dancing has been turned to mourning, the crown has fallen from our heads, woe to us for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore Us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Let us pray. Lord, these are your words that you allowed your prophet to pin down so many years ago. May they guide us in this time, and may it be your words that are said this morning and not my own. And Lord, please open our ears to hear you and open our hearts to receive the word that you have for us this morning. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This chapter begins with a plea for God to remember. And the author proceeds to rehearse the story one final time. Israel had been turned over to strangers, they become orphaned, they've sought to get food from other nations because there is none available in their own uh, country. Joy has ceased, dancing is now mourning, and their crown has fallen to the ground. Now why would the author once again rehearse the story and all of the sufferings? Why would he even ask God to remember? Asking God to remember is not, a, is not a plea as if God is saying, like, oh, I forgot, yes, oh, yeah, you, sorry, I forgot about that. That's not what's going on, right? It's a plea to God for aid. It's a prayer. Remember God. Surely if you look down and you, and you see what we're going through, you would bring some kind of aid to us, help to our crumbled doorstep, right? Surely you're not going to abandon us. This is the purpose of rehearsing the story once again. It is a complaint to God, but also a prayer. A prayer that he just would not only just remember, but as the book ends, a plea for him to re-intervene and to renew his people. That they might not be destroyed or in exile forever. This is exactly how our process of lament doubles as a prayer. For there is also benefit for you and I to recall that story. There is great benefit for ensuring that we know where we have come from if we are to be able to move forward. This is what the scriptures ask of us. It's what our theology demands. But it can be risky business to be willing to do this. Consider Israel's situation, and even to recognize that behind all of this brutally honest lament that there is an undergirding of hope, a plea for God to remember so he can get involved because after all so many promises and so many previous stories and prophecies were given to Israel that gave them reason to believe that he was going to re-intervene. But how does one maintain such hope? After going through such hard and difficult circumstances? How does a nation, through the rehearsing and through the remembering of where they've been, still manage to find hope in the present? And this is where the storytelling and remembering comes in. For anyone in this room that has greatly struggled in this area, you know what it is like to have those deep longings within the hope within hope in the midst of turmoil. And as you're longing, you have the whispering that happens in your ear, saying, Just stop hoping. What is the point? Give in to your despair. Abandon your faith. You're grasping into vanity, but then it is a Spirit that speaks and says, No, God has not abandoned you. I have not left you. I have not forsaken you. I want to call on God this morning to remember our church, Emmanuel. Not that I think he's forgotten us, because the scriptures speak differently, requiring faith, and I'm uh, calling on you guys to even have a risky faith to continue to step forward as a church. We have guarantees and promises of heaven, guarantees and promises of the new heavens and a new earth that is to come, promises of the Spirit that gives us access to God even now. And Jesus who said that he will never leave us nor forsake us. But as a story behind Lamentations shows, as the book of Job, as Job's story reveals, as one out of every three psalms reveal, there's going to be no guarantees to the ease and comfortability of what's ahead for us. No guarantees to the comfortability of our day-to-day life as we step out in faith on God's promises undergirded by his story. This is what Paul referred to as a secret and hidden wisdom of God, this tension, right? In 1 Corinthians two, moving on to quote from Isaiah 64 in which says, from old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. Isaiah 64 verse four. No one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You must consider the flames that were ablaze at the ruins of Jerusalem while the author carefully constructed this poem in Lamentations 5. How exhausted, utterly exhausted everyone would have been from the multiple year siege on their city by the enemy. How exasperated and weary-eyed the populace would have been having seen, as we just read, some horrendous things to occur and even be repeated. Tragically losing loved ones, seeing the glory of what used to be of Jerusalem raised to the ground, but yet still looking to God, who had all power to intervene, yet confusingly did not. The God who is all-powerful, but in this time even seemed to refuse to stop the excess of horror on his own people, but still the author looks up, and even in confusion, and says in verse 19, But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. This is why in this final sermon, as we aim, seek and aim to move forward as a church in faith, as I call you to do so, and as I can find... Dozens of scriptures that reveal the character of God in showing us that we have so many reasons to continue forward in faith. What we do not have, though, as we said, is those guarantees that the road will be smooth because Christianity can be hazardous. It can be difficult. I would love and challenge all of you to find a verse from Jesus that says, I've come to give you an easy and comfortable life, says the man who was crucified if you find such a verse you need to get a new Bible Eugene Peterson the pastor and translator of the message Bible was once getting blood drawn at a Red Cross donation center the technician asked him various lengthy questions to ensure he qualified to give blood and she says do you participate in hazardous work at the moment he had his priestly collar on and his response was yes She looked at him a little confused, and then she smiled and smirked. However, Peter Peterson, in this book, which is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he clarifies why he said yes to her question. He says this What is hazardous in my life is my work as a Christian. Every day I put faith on the line. I've never seen God. In a world where nearly everything can be weighed and explained and quantified and subjected to psychological analysis and scientific control, I persist in making the center of my life a God in whom no eye has seen nor ear heard, whose will no one can probe, and it's a risk. Every day I put my hope on the line. I don't know one thing about the future, I don't know what the next hour will hold. There may be sickness. "...accident, personal or world catastrophe. Before this day is over, I may have to deal with death or pain or loss or rejection. But still, despite my ignorance and surrounded by tinny optimists and cowardly pessimists, I saw that God will indeed accomplish His will, and I cheerfully persist in living in the hope that nothing will separate me from the love of Christ." We can learn from limitations, even in the unknown, a path to step forward, a biblical way to step forward, and we can call this path remembering. We must learn to remember where we've come from as a church if we are going to know where to step forward. I don't think it is an accident that Lamentations 5 is rehearsing the story again. When I came here as, to Emmanuel, there's not yet a culture of rehearsing the tragedy that occurred here. And I saw intentionally as a new pastor here to give us the comfortability and the freedom to rehearse that story amongst one another in your own heart, to one another, to your elders. For Jerusalem were to step forward after their catastrophe and in, in the risk of once again rebuilding their city, they must remember why they needed to rebuild in the first place. And as a church, we must do the same. We must remember where we've come from if we are to know where we are stepping forward and how we are to step forward. But if we are to learn, uh, to remember our story as a church, there is a crucial ingredient that is revealed in limitations. The author's statement of hope concerning God's enthronement, sitting and ruling and reigning throughout all generations, is not some abstract, random thought that just uh, appeared. If you know your Old Testament, it reminds you of a story. A story of a rebellious Israel asking God for a king for all the wrong reasons and God giving Israel Saul, who would eventually wound up being a mess of a leader. The story proceeds to a man named Jesse and his family, as the prophet Samuel was sent to by God in order to appoint a replacement king for Saul among his sons, all the strong and tall and, and older sons were presented and then rejected by God. But it was the small and the youngest, a shepherd boy, the unexpected one named David who was anointed by Samuel. Fast forward many years later, David is ruling on the throne, and God was giving David prophetic promises and a covenant saying that forever one of his descendants would be on the throne throughout all generations. And that is a story that is ruminating in the author of Lamentations' mind. Surely that was on mind as he wrote, your throne endures throughout all generations. And that's where something peculiar happens. As the author rehearses Jerusalem's story for the final time, they recognize that Jerusalem's smoldering ashes, a story of tragedy, did not happen in isolation by itself. Jerusalem's story was to be understood in light of God's story. In other words, Jerusalem's story can only make sense beneath God's story. And perhaps it is the very purpose for all the very difficult, sad, and emotionally, really emotionally intense stuff that we've read here from the pulpit throughout the book of Limitations. Yet the author has wrestled with God for these five chapters, and we are brought to the end of of the book, left to try and pick up the pieces and put them back together into some sort of coherent whole for us as a church. And the only way we can step forward is within the acceptance That this church's story, our church's story, has also taken place in and within and below and beneath God's own story. Something much larger than our story. Something much higher, something above our own, but yet still very much present and wrapped up in our story. This is hard for us modern people to really try to wrap our minds around because you and I live in the days we talked about before that is just it's so easy to separate today from the past. Our collective memories are very short. Even as a nation we've lost much interest in historical events. We are trained to live as these like isolated individuals pondering our own path in the world, considering what you are to do and how you are to do it. We've lost purpose of understanding the past. It's beginning to seem rather irrelevant for us because today is here, and I have the freedom to build and carve my own path and to conquer the past and to carve out my own story as I please. There's a philosopher, Charles Taylor, refers to this as the imminent frame of modern times. We live uh, right now in this hour, it seems, in our modern times. We've come to understand the moment as separated from the past and certainly don't have many thoughts about tomorrow In our never-ending, nonstop, 24-7 news cycles who often run out of material and are forced to make or create events to be more dramatic than they are and are always demanding us to be attentive to the minute that's in front of us apart from the past and without concern for the future. Our times, they isolate us into uh, this reality of being all about you, about your life and your emotions and your individual response to it, much apart from all the stories around. Fleet Foxes, a popular uh, band today, uh, once wrote this in their song. I thought it was rather pertinent. To this is called helpless blues so what he said i was raised up believing i was somehow unique like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes unique in each way you can see and now after some thinking i'd say i'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me that's the world we're raised in. I think we're shaped by these things. But I'm trying to call us to get out of that world, to not be such modern people, but to find the old landmarks, the ancient paths, as Jeremiah said in Jeremiah sixteen six, verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. The old and ancient paths bring us to realize that there is another, grander story that must be told if your story is to make any sense at all. We must learn to rehearse our own story within God's story. We must learn to think of ourselves and all that we've been through as somehow even participating in God's story. Like two convergent rivers, always running through one another and unable to be separated your story cannot be understood in light of God's... Sorry, it cannot be separated from God's story. Imagine taking two cups of water and pouring them into one larger cup and then being asked, separate the water, the exact water is when each cup separate back and put it in the separate cups. And we would say it's impossible. It's like putting toothpaste back in the tube, right? You can't do that. And that is how we are to understand our story and God's story. You can't separate them. I want to get specific on what I'm talking about by God's story that fleshes out Lamentations and the hope of God's enthronement and kingly rule over this world. I'm going to fast forward from the events in Lamentations 5, about five centuries in biblical history, from the fall of Jerusalem all the way to rebuilt Israel beneath Roman rule. Because here is where all of our stories, if you are a Christian in this room, finds its roots. And if you are a Bob Dylan fan, any of your Bob Dylan fans out there, woohoo, I don't know. Not um, my, my generation, but I wish he was. He said this strap yourself to the tree with roots because you ain't going nowhere. The gospel story is our tree with roots that we must strap ourselves to because there is no going anywhere apart from it. Here is a story that says this, the God who was enthroned in heavens, in the heavens set aside all of that glory and took on skin and bones. As Lamentations recalls the burning and the destruction of their city, as you and I look at our own lives, and we recall our own hardships, the trials, the suffering, the loss of loved ones who mean to us so much. The diagnoses of cancer, the declining of aging parents and family and siblings and our own sins that have wrought destruction in our own lives, the sins committed against us. When we observe those close to us suffering beneath very hard and difficult seasons of life, broken families, the list can go on and on. Our church even has experienced its own deep loss. God actually took the humility. I know you know this story, but here we are. We're rehearsing it. And I want you to be amazed once again that the God of all things actually humbled himself to live in skin and bones and flesh in a fallen world in the midst of all of this brokenness and allow himself to feel it, to feel the burden of loss in his own Life. His father Joseph, the story were not given in scripture, but he apparently dies himself early in Jesus' life, either teenage years or young adult years. So even Jesus knew what it was like to lose his earthly father. We see Jesus standing among the sick, the blind, the lame, sinners, and those sinned against the widows and those suffering and having compassion on them and being willing to take on their burdens onto himself we see him looking over a hard-hearted city that was pushing him away and he wept over it allowing himself to feel the pain of rejection we see him looking over the tomb of his close friend Lazarus Standing with Lazarus' own family, whom he was also close with, as they all wailed in mourning, our Lord deeply moved, the scripture says. And the original language actually says he was deeply moved with anger. Anger at death. Anger at the fact that his friend had to die. And he mourned and he wept with them. We see our Lord knowing that this was not only... This is not the beginning of his sufferings, but he was just, was just one step in the story. Is he, then, he, he then turned his face towards Jerusalem, knowing that greater suffering lied ahead of him. This God he was enthroned in the heavens, as he entered Jerusalem in that fateful week, was received as a king in his own city, but just one week later was arrested in the middle, in the middle of the night, was then beaten spit upon and mocked by his own people. His body lashed with hooks of iron, his scourging, his body broken, the blood being innocently spilled, and he still stood silent as his Roman attackers lashed out. Being accused of treason against Caesar and heresy of claiming to be the son of God himself, Pilate called for his crucifixion. And then was placed on the head of our precious Lord a crown of thorns and a royal robe of mockery. The thick nails were driven through his hands and feet. The roughly hewn cross scraped against the torn flesh, stained by the probably dozens of previous victims of its wood. And he was raised on a cross in the outskirts of the city, probably even facing. The very city that had placed him there. And he clung to his suffering. He didn't reject it. As he had all authority to, he allowed himself to suffer. This is why the author of Hebrews says that Jesus has experienced everything that you and I go through tremendous suffering in every way, even all the temptations that we experience, yet he remained without sin. This is why he is our high priest. As he hung on that cross, suddenly we realize that our story has now crossed with God's. In fact, we can say that God has burst open that brass ceiling of humanity's exile from God's presence and has intentionally carved out the paths and the banks of history for our streams to start flowing through our story, our streams of our story, to come crashing into his Jesus can now look you in the eye, in the darkest, in deepest moments of sorrow and suffering and with compassion and love and even tears of grace and say, My child, I know. I know this world is broken. I've been there. But behold, I am making all things new. If you are in Christ today, your story no longer can be told apart from that story of the cross. Our church's story cannot be understood apart from Jesus' sufferings and his victory. For how could we make sense of this suffering if our stories were isolated from this? What hope would be left for us? This is the good news of Jesus, my friends. That in the grace of God, your story can now be told within Jesus' story. And we can find reservoirs of never-ending hope Drawn from the wells of his resurrection, leading to the springs of our salvation, as Isaiah chapter 11 says, and to the new mercies every morning, and to bright hopes of tomorrow. As we close this service, we are going to take communion. And as we do so, I want to close with one final story. You might be familiar with this story. I also want to um, ask Bernie if you need communion elements. We have this wonderful, tasty um, COVID, you know, thing here that just warning you, it's not the best in the world, but we have it. It'll, it will do for our purposes this morning. Bernie will be walking around. If you need one, raise your hand. I'll make sure that you get one. I want to close on one final story before we proceed in taking the elements. Horatio Spafford, a happily married man with four daughters was a successful attorney and real estate investor living in Chicago during 1871. This is a year of the great fire of Chicago, the city almost being entirely burned into an ash heap. Spafford lost his business, his wealth, and almost all of his fortunes in the fire. With what little money he had left... He thought that an extended stay in England for his family, his wife and four daughters, to kind of replan, regroup, get some counsel for some friends he had in England, some pastor friends, about what is next for his family. He sent his wife and four daughters on a ship to England, planning to join them after he finished some last-minute business and what was left of Chicago and of his former life. Then that ship... Containing his wife and four daughters was involved in a terrible collision, and it sucked. More than 200 people lost their lives that day, including all four of Horatio's daughters. His wife, Anna, was a lone survivor in his family. As she arrived in England, she sent a telegram to her husband that began with, Saved, alone, what shall we do? Horatio immediately set sail for England, and his boat traveled the same path on the ocean that his families did, and at the point in the journey where the graves of his four daughters was right beneath the ship, the captain appeared to let him know that they were right above them. It was then that the the gospel story, Jesus' story of his life, his death, and his resurrection came colliding into Horatio's story, his sorrowful reality. Pulling out pen and paper, as mourning and lamentation spurned within him, hope began spilling out onto the page as he remembered, as he remembered the hope we have in Christ. His words were this, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. Why do I read that story? It always makes me do that every single time, right? It's because Horatio understood his story is flowing within the story of the gospel. He understood that Jesus had come so long ago to take on sin and death on his own shoulders. And in his defeating of death and rising once again to new life, he could see the billowing waves of the ocean above the graves of his precious daughters and say, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And as we turn towards communion, it's a call to remember, to know where we have come from as a church, To know the suffering we have experienced as a church family and to cling to the gospel. The good news that we can also say as we look toward these elements that Jesus gave us for the exact purposes of remembering. Remembering his body broken for us. His blood poured out for us. To remember that he has suffered too. But he has conquered through his suffering. That his crown of thorns shine and they glitter as a kingly crown. That the cross were the steps to his throne. And even now as he is seated at the right hand of the Father in the throne in the heavenly places, he has provided us with the hope of his return. As he is making and he will make all things new. And in turn, we as a church are provided with such hope. With glimpses of the resurrection today, through the indwelling work of the Spirit. That it out of these smoldering ashes that we've experienced as a church, He can also make us new. So if you will please take these elements. If you were here this morning, do not yet identify as a Christian, we would ask that you refrain from taking the elements. And take this time to consider where you are in your own heart concerning the gospel and its claims and your acceptance of it. Now can be the time of your salvation. And a simple response of prayer and commitment of repentance and faith and allegiance to Christ this morning can set you on a life altering, life changing journey of a relationship with Jesus Christ by the power of His Spirit in you. I want to read from Luke 22 as you recount the Last Supper. And He took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, he gave it to them. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please take the body. and Let's take a moment for prayer and reflection. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he said, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant and my blood. Let's drink of the cup and remember his blood shed for us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless God's holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Loving God, we thank you that you have fed us in the elements, that you have united us with Christ and have given us a foretaste of the heavenly banquet in your eternal realm. Send us out in the power of your spirit to live and to work to your praise and to your glory. Lord, please heal this church and for those who are still hurting this morning, may the doors of healing be burst open, Lord. May healthy foundations be built here and placed at Emmanuel. And may in the days ahead. Oh, Jesus, you be high and lifted up in our hearts and in our eyes. And may you receive all the glory and praise and honor in the walls of Emmanuel Church. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. We have one closing song for our time today.
1: my sin
2: Are so thankful that you give us reason to praise. Whether the times are uncertain or even when we think we have everything in control, you have everything in control. You know what the next day will bring so we don't have to worry about today. And no matter What life throws at us, you're always there to catch us. So Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty in our lives. We thank you for your provision. Most of all, we thank you for your gospel story and showing us how our stories are just a part of it.